On March 16, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Dossier, presented by Metro by T-Mobile. Eight years, three months, and 29 days. Today, my son was murdered. Who do you think murders? The truth will come out. Previously on The Dossier. Detective Steve Katz, he was the lead investigator on the Biggie murder. He went back to New York with three other LAPD detectives to do their investigation. One of the persons that they went and talked to was Big Gene. And he picked out and circled Amir Muhammad in a six-pack and said, that was the guy that he confronted outside the Peterson when the award show was over, who was standing right outside of Puffy's car. Big Gene kind of showed him, brandished his gun, showed him he had his gun. So Big Gene said, he goes, I will have that image etched in my mind forever. I know that face. This is the guy. You are now listening to episode five of the dossier. Psycho Mike Robinson in The Handler. For years, many investigators and journalists have tried to get their hands on photographs that exist of the night that Biggie was killed. FBI agent Phil Carson saw these photographs and one of the main witnesses in the murder of Biggie, Eugene Deal, has also seen these photographs. Phil Carson has told me in these photographs is a picture of Amir Muhammad and pictures of David Mack and Rafael Perez at the Peterson Automotive Museum where Biggie was killed. Phil Carson wasn't able to make copies of these photographs. What he did make a copy of is a screenshot of surveillance video taken from the cameras at the museum that night. The LAPD also has video from the night Biggie was killed. That video was never shown to Phil or it has disappeared. In your opinion, and I think this has been a contention by many, many people who have looked into this, of that night, there was a either a lot of photographs that was in the possession of the LAPD or even surveillance video that existed of that night. There was a shitload of it. I, I, I saw it. Yeah. I saw it originally. But then when I went back, because at first when we went there, first of all, when we, when myself, Mora and Sambar, when we looked at the murder file of LAPD at uh, Deputy Chief Jim McDonald's office, we were specifically told you cannot make copies of anything. You can you can take some notes, but you can you cannot make any copies. We're like, okay, cool, fine. And understand at this time, and even when I had gone back and talked to Big Gene, I don't have this train of thought that, okay, this person or these people were involved in murdering Biggie, so I need to try to gather enough evidence to prove it. I, I'm still wide open in my mind of just trying to say, Let's just gather all the evidence we can and let the evidence speak for itself. 
I don't, I don't care who it is. I don't care if it's Joe Blow. And if it's not a police officer that was involved, then great. I don't, I don't enjoy investigating, you know, my fellow cops and stuff like that. But I'll let the evidence speak for itself. So Big Gene said, you need to get a copy of that photo. Well, I did see that photo when I went back and I talked to Steve Katz. When I went back the second time, and again, I've got Special Agent Jager with me, who's on my squad. Those photos were now taken out of that book. That's when I went back to my bosses, and it's documented in the FBI file that, and signed by my bosses, saying specifically, we want to look at all your photos in the Biggie book, as well as specifically the photo that's a big gene who we believe was Amir Muhammad or just a person of interest standing next to Puffy's car, that this photo was shown by Detective Katz along with three of his other detectives, which is documented to Big Gene. Everybody says that, uh, no, we never showed him any photo like that and there's no photo that exists. And I'm like, okay, then why did you write uh, a memo and make it part of your case file, which is now part of my FBI case file, that you did show him that photo? I mean, it doesn't make sense. It's embarrassing that so they even say that. when this happens at that moment, is this one of the first indications that something is a little bit off up to this point? Absolutely. And again, it's... You're not finding a smoking gun, but you're finding all this evidence that's just piling up. And understand, it's not only piling up just regarding the Biggie case... But there's an exact correlation to that same kind of information that was involved in the Ruben Palmeros case, that was involved in the Rampart case, and it was involved in the David Mack case. I mean, how many times do you have to see the same movie, but with different actors? You know what the ending is going to be. Yeah. And that's exactly what we were looking at here. So it seems, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, on your trip to New York you get a, a serious piece of information. Did you get any information from Puffy at all or no? No, but what I think what got his attention was I told him that um, Biggie wasn't the intended target. Puffy was. And that kind of stopped him in his tracks. And he, he cooperated. He was very friendly. Um, but also at that same time, He's seeing his popularity um, skyrocket and his wealth or he, I mean, he's, he's becoming, he, he is a mogul, but he's becoming a bigger mogul at this time. And dare I say that, that he can't bring Biggie back and he feels horrible about it because that's one of his best friends. But at the same time, he's not going to want to bury himself and drag down his business and put another target on his back because he was the intended target. Advertising in the club, they played the thing 30 times. You know what I'm saying? I was always bouncing around and everything, trying to like, you know, um, chase the ladies and, and have fun and just was the real, real like, you know, um, per, you know, I was more, more personable. He liked to sit in the cut, you know what I'm saying? To smoke his weed. And I was like, yo, tonight, tonight is special. We done did something special. You know what I'm saying? Um, he was supposed to go to, to 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 London the next day, and then he was like, "Yo, I never get to chill with you, man. We done did something great. Can I just postpone one to London for one more day?" And I was like, "Nah, you need to go to London." 
he just he just missed the plane. You know what I'm saying? And I would I would just like, and he showed up at the crib. I was at, I said, "What's up? Yo, let's go to the Soul Train joint." And um, so we there, and and he was just like, "Yo, yo, yo!" But tonight though, I want to chill. And so that's why you got all them pictures of us in the cut with the Chris style and all that. We was just chilling. We just just chilling. Um, it's definitely like off our game as far as you know the intensity of the situation. Um, you know, we, we just like, you know, we, we got loose. It's like a lot of cats, you know, get, get, get caught slipping. We just felt loose. We felt too comfortable, you know? And, um, so we went out, we had a great night. Her hypnotized, they played like 20 times in the club. You know, I was aggressive puff at that point. So I'm going and grabbing the deep, the mic, announcing that shit, turning it over. Yeah, we up in this motherfucker. Yeah, love to LA, love to that, da, 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 love the trips, the blood, you know what I'm saying? I'm comfy. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Too comfy. And um, you know, but he got the head of records. And then um when, when we got out of there, when we left out of there, you know what I'm saying, life was changed forever. It just so happens that Big Gene was doing his job as well as all of Puffy's security was doing. And, and Biggie didn't have any. Biggie didn't have any security. And I guess the easiest way to explain it, and I explained it to Puffy, and then he understood it. He got it. Whenever Puffy traveled, he had a full entourage of people. And whenever whatever city he would go into, especially L.A., he not only brought, brought his own entourage of people, but then he, they would reach out and get a couple other like LAPD or some locals for local knowledge and all that sort of stuff. Biggie had come out about a month before these awards show. He didn't come out with any security. He came out with uh, with little C's. They they went up to San Francisco to do some type of award show or presentation. Um, little C's was telling me. I mean, they're going to the movies. They're going to the park to shoot baskets. If somebody wanted to kill Biggie, you sure as hell are not going to wait for the evening at the Peterson for the awards show and and potentially have hundreds of cops around, hundreds of other personal security around, why in the world would you wait at that time to kill Biggie when you could have picked out any other day at any other time for the whole previous month and that he had zero protection around him? When I explained that to Puffy, it got his attention. Like I was in a, a state of, like, shock, you know what I'm saying? Because... This wasn't like a, a, a tough guy bumping into nobody. Big ain't mess with nobody. He ain't, he ain't go and say nothing disrespectful about Pop or Shug or nothing like that. You know what I'm saying? Just holding his head. You know what I'm saying? Taking the was like, yo, what the fuck? What the fuck is this? Like this is this is just. And then I was just I was just frozen. I was just in shock. Until the day I made missing you. That's the first day I went out the house. You know what I'm saying? First, first, first they went and they, they, they went and hit me upstate somewhere. You know what I'm saying? Because they were just concerned about me. Now, like it's my family. You know what I'm saying? For like two weeks, and then um, then I just went home. And um, you know, one day I heard the Sting joint, and I, then I went to the studio with missing you. And I just started to get up and fight back and make sure the world would know he's a legend forever. And now when this when this thing is over, we get inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And that's what the fuck is up. 
So, you have Big Gene, and let's let's talk about your thought process with Amir Muhammad. Is that where you go next after you go to New York and you start to realize, um, hey, there's this photo that exists. Big Gene is telling me this is your shooter. Now, again, like you said, you're not necessarily trying to solve this murder. You're trying to gather as much information to understand was there LAPD involvement in this murder? Right? Correct. So after you go to New York, it seems like you now have even more information than you already had. What was your what was your next step as you remember it or you recollect? Well, two things are happening at this point. One is all fingers are pointing to LAPD involvement and dare I say Amir Muhammad involvement. And the other half of it is all the evidence that I'm gathering is also not pointing to any other direction. If it was, I would look into it. Again, I got I got nothing against LAPD or I mean they're they're my friends, right? But I mean I have a job to do and so all the evidence is pointing in this one direction. And so that's what we start looking at. And again, it's not it's not just big gene that's pointing me in that direction. It's all the other investigative things that I've looked at. It's all the evidence that I've looked at from Perry's case from Russ Poole's case, from the knowledge that I have from the previous corruption cases that I've done, everything is pointing towards LAPD involvement. Now, and understand, even everybody else that may come up with some crazy theory of who might have killed Biggie, the one constant that that every witness and every investigator always says to me was, there is no way in hell one person could have pulled this off. Zero chance. This was well orchestrated. There had to be a bunch of people involved. They were well well organized. They had to have the resources and the technology to communicate because there was no way you could have uniformed police officers right there, which is crazy to think because you would never have an event like that without uniformed police officers. So everything was pointing towards LAPD's involvement. That wasn't my choice. That's just what the evidence said. So at that moment in your investigation, when you're saying everything is pointing in the in the direction of LAPD involvement, does that indicate in your mind that you were specifically looking at Rafael Perez, David Mack, maybe Kevin Gaines, maybe Sammy Martin, mm-hmm. maybe Nino Durden, are those the players that you're looking at at that point? Or you're just open to, to, to hey, this was very organized, so I'm open to any information or any leads that I'm going to get? Or did you say to yourself, because of what Russ Poole did, because of what Perry Sanders was doing, that you could hone in on these particular individuals? No, I was open to anything and everything that I saw. At the same time, I'm not going to ignore the knowledge that I had from these other corruption cases. Well, that's uh, basically what it appears to be, uh, a retaliation, okay? And I think Should Knight wanted it to to look that way, okay? But, uh, you know, had we been able to aggressively investigate, 
and uh, had the heart to uh, connect the two and uh, and do a thorough investigation, I think we probably would have found out more information. And why didn't you? Well, you know, there's a lot of factors, but uh, I think the fact that law enforcement officers were working for death row, and that was a scandal in itself, okay? Uh, the fact that law enforcement officers were working for gangsters, known felons, uh, uh, basically organized crime, because it, it was no secret that death row records uh, was involved in drug trafficking. Immerse yourself in the fascinating tale of Song of Solomon by the legendary Pulitzer Prize winning author, Tony Morrison, a mesmerizing coming-of-age masterpiece that has captivated readers around the world. Follow the protagonist, Milkman Dead, who was born shortly after a neighborhood eccentric hurled himself off a roof in a vain attempt at flight. For the rest of his life, Milkman too will be trying to fly. As Morrison follows Milkman on a quest to uncover his roots and himself in his Rust Belt hometown, to the place of his family's origins, she introduces an entire cast of strivers and seeresses, liars, and assassins, the inhabitants of a fully realized black world. As the New Yorker put it, Morrison moves easily in and out of the lives and thoughts of her characters, luxuriating in the diversity of circumstances and personality. Whether you're a seasoned reader or new to Toni Morrison, Song of Solomon is a must-read that will ignite your imagination and leave you wanting to read more Morrison. Song of Solomon, a timeless tale that will stay with you long after you've turned its final page. Available now at TonyMorrison.com and wherever books are sold. All right, so life doesn't happen bi-weekly, so why should Payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earn In. Earn In is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 per day or up to $750 per pay period. Just download the Earn In app and verify your paycheck. Then access up to 100 a day as you work, and leave an optional tip. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. So maybe you need to get your kids something special, or you and the wife need a scintillating night out, every once in a while at least. So download Earn In Today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in the dossier under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com forward slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. One of the key components of the FBI investigation is that Phil Carson wanted to try and get the alleged trigger man, Amir Muhammad, 
on a wire. In order to do that, he enlisted the help of a career criminal informant named Psycho Mike or Michael Robinson. Robinson's personal history in connection to the Biggie murder has always been steeped in mystery and rumors. The facts are hazy, but here's what I know and what information I have. Psycho Mike was described to me by at least two people as one of the most reliable and productive informants that the L.A. County Sheriff's Office has ever had. He helped on hundreds of cases, not only for them, but also with the FBI. Psycho Mike was a former Black Gorilla family member, which is one of the most feared prison gangs across the United States. Another key piece of information here was that Psycho Mike's brother was a known hitman. It was his brother who knew Amir Muhammad and traveled in the same circles. So from a chronology standpoint, you're looking at all this, you got all of this information. Catch me up. When you meet Tim Flaherty, Tim Flaherty is Psycho Mike Robinson's like handler. Correct. Right? And he mentioned to me that he had a source who's now deceased that I can talk about, but had already been outed in the newspaper, um, Psycho Mike, Michael Robinson. And uh, so I got together with Tim and we met with, uh, with Michael Robinson and he told us a whole backstory. He is, as far as you can tell, a lifelong career informant for law enforcement. And incredibly successful, incredible, not just for the FBI, but for the sheriff's department. I believe his name was Detective Richard Valderrama. Valdemar. Valdemar. Was his Um, handler at the sheriff's department. And again, before I even looked into possibly trying to utilize Psycho Mike, Michael Robinson, I mean, I talked extensively with Tim. I talked extensively with Richard uh, Valdemar. Valdemar. And they not only had incredible things to say about Psycho Mike, but it's all documented. I mean, when you open up a source and you pay a source or you use information that a source provides you, it's all documented. And Psycho Mike was, he was nails. And when I when I met with him, with Tim, and I started getting the whole background of Psycho Mike and where he grew up, the people that he knew, um, the relationship of his brother, who had a direct relationship with Amir Muhammad, and all the things that he told me, uh, it, everything was clicking there. The tactic that the LAPD used very wisely was to make sure that this case was never solved, was to discredit almost everyone involved. My job was to make sure that I found the right people to talk to. I tracked down Richard Valdemar. Valdemar was retired from the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department after spending most of his 33 years on the job combating gangs. For the last 20 years, he was assigned to the Major Crimes Bureau. One other thing, and this is important, Valdemar was the handler of Psycho Mike Robinson. A handler in law enforcement circles would have managed Robinson as an informant and made sure that he verified all of the information that he was given. He had a couple of different monikers, but uh, because of... uh... Well, they thought he was crazy. He was uh, on medication, 
He was a very violent gang member, and he went to uh, prison. When he went to prison, this particular doctor, a very good doctor in the prison system, found out that what his his uh, violence was related to, to uh, some kind of chemical deficiency. And he, the doctor in prison, concocted a cocktail of different psychotropic drugs, and he found the over the years found the correct formulation and once uh, Michael was on those drugs he he never had little problems uh, but because of that history and because sometimes he, he didn't like for instance he was perfectly normal with that medication and then the prison system released him to the street where he would not receive that uh, those drugs. So when he was on the street, the lack of the, those drugs took some time for him to find a doctor who would prescribe him those same uh, that same cocktail. In fact, I fought very hard to get the. Uh, I <laughs> probably broke the Hippocratic oath, uh, forcing the doctor in in uh, the prison system to give me the formulation so I could give it to his uh, his doctor on the outside. But once wow. he received the once he received those medications, you know, he, uh, he settled right down. But that was over a long period of time. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of incidents that occur like that. And a lot of people said that he was a, you know, crack user or he, he didn't use drugs or even drink because if he drank or used drugs, that cocktail formulation would not work. So that's another shocking thing. People all thought he was a drug dealer, but he, he didn't. He couldn't because of the, the medication. It, it sounded like if you, you, you went and I guess maybe out of your way or you, you felt the need to really help him, is that because he was such a trusted informant? Yeah, Here, here's the thing. He had some kind of a learning disability. He could neither read nor write, okay? Uh, so when he came out, I was his handler. In order to keep him from going to prison, I tried to find a place for him to live. And the first problem was that he cannot read or write, so uh, he needed to apply for uh, Social Security, uh, SSU, you know, stuff. So they give him paperwork to fill out. He, he walks into the office. He asks for help. They give him all this paperwork to fill out. He can't fill it out. He can't read or write. So I wind up doing the paperwork, right, to get him section-made housing, kind of, you know, his uh, disability thing. So little by little, I wind up, you know, doing these, this stuff for him, and he always came through. He always came through. I mean, not without a lot of fireworks, Sometimes trying to get him to do stuff like rely on the police or testify in court, that was fireworks because he didn't trust the police. Well, you can see why. <laughs> and yeah. uh, he trusted me because I grew up in Compton. He, he introduced me to his family as his brother, and things like that. I mean, so we had this, this relationship, but, but he would say something to me and everybody would tell me, that's impossible. That's impossible. That couldn't be true. And, and then it turned out to be true. What made him such a great informant? Was he just such a part of that world for so long? Yes. 
not only him, but you know his brother, you know relatives of his. Uh, he, he, it was very, very difficult to explain how many contacts he had uh, in the in the world, the prison world, and the and the uh, street. This area of Compton that he comes from is very, very dangerous, and that's where I grew up, Willowbrook. You know, Compton's a bad place, but Willowbrook is worse, and Watts is a bad place, but. But this Willowbrook area, you know, uh, Fruit Town, Piru, there's uh, the Crips that he belonged to, the Lantana Block. These, these guys, uh, they're serious gangsters. <laughs> it's what the people like uh, NWA try to emulate, but 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 they're they're not even close to what these guys were. Was his brother a contract killer? Is that was that true, or was that something that was also made up? Well, he said it was true. Uh, uh, you know, he, he, that's how he found, or that's how he met uh, Amir, the the Muslim friend with Mac and uh, Perez. So and he talked about the party that he met him at because his brother had been a, a paid killer as well. You know, Mike ran into those heavy circles. This is the Black Rilla family uh, contacts. Black Rilla family, the prison gang that controls all Black Street gangs, whether they're Crip or Blood. Next of the big four prison gangs, I like to call them California's version of the axis of evil, was the Black Gorilla family. Two of their founders were George Jackson and W.L. Nolan, who were housed together in 1967 at San Quentin Prison. They began as an African-American revolutionary group with an anti-establishment ideology. During the formative years of the BGF, some of the hardcore members were Hugo, Yogi Pinnell, James Doc Holliday, W.L. Nolan, and George Jackson, just to name a few. What I needed to do throughout the process of finding all of this information is that I had to make sure various pieces of it checked out. I was talking to sources who were career criminals, criminals who had manipulated the system. The shocking reality is the more people I talked to, the picture became clear. The information that Psycho Mike provided, standing on its own, doesn't hold up. When it does hold up is when you have trusted police like Richard Valdemar, Phil Carson, and Tim Flaherty vouching for him. Guys like Phil, Richard, and Tim Flaherty were not run-of-the-mill cops. These were the guys that you made movies about. They were hard-boiled investigators with many convictions under their belt. They were good police, as they say. Valdemar filled me in as to why Psycho Mike would even know about Amir Muhammad and why the circles he ran in were some of the most vicious in the Los Angeles underworld. They're, they're that powerful. Yes. Uh, very, and, and you know... Uh... Uh, Doc Holliday, uh, he was the head at the time of the Black Gorilla family. Doc Holliday was the, also the leader of the Sibides Liberation Army. And George Jackson, the founder of the Black Gorilla family. These are legendary names that Mike knew and had associations with. The thing that I'm trying to put together by reading these FBI documents is at what point did Michael decide that he had information about Amir Muhammad? Eventually, my team is the one to arrest Suge Knight. 
I think we were arrested on three different separate occasions. So that started him talking about what he knew. And he was just telling this to you at that point. How does he end up being found out where they want him to, to, to be deposed and all that stuff? That was with, when I was working with Sergio that he did the deposition. Sergio Robledo was the private investigator hired by Biggie's mom, Valletta Wallace, to work with her lawyer, Perry Sanders. Sergio was important to me, and he would become a mentor and a dear friend. As I drove around Los Angeles hunting for more information, I would call Sergio almost every day. He was very strategic about what he would tell me, often talking in riddles. See, at the time, he was under a gag order about some of his investigative work product in the Big E civil trial. He would give me pieces of information. Then, when I came back to him with what I found out, he would be astounded. One day, Sergio sat me down, and he asked me if I had checked my surroundings when I left my hotel in L.A. He was concerned for my safety. Coming from him, I didn't take that lightly. Sergio knew he existed and came because he knew you, you were his handler, he came to you. Yeah, I was the only one who could basically control Mike uh, without him. If he doesn't trust the police, you know, he doesn't trust the system, the court system, uh, that type of thing. And, and uh, well, he had done a huge, he had done a huge case against the BGF and the uh, Nickerson Garden with the Timothy Flaherty. And uh, I got him to testify in court because, you know, he did the case, the hand-to-hand drug buy, but he would not testify. And I finally convinced him to testify. Once he got on the stand, he testified like a professional. I was really worried because, you know, you, he's volatile. And if you push him, especially on the, in the stand, he, he's liable to, you know, explode. Uh, he was successful in doing that. And then when I retired, I was working with Sergio on the case, on the Wallace case. Yeah, and that's when when he does the deposition. And 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 Richard, I guess the question is because if you want, if you buy into what the media says, um, did you believe Mike in what he was saying and what he knew in regards to the to the Suge Knight and Mac and Perez and all that stuff? Okay, I I would wind back to when he first started talking to me about corruption because I'm working in the Compton area yeah. and he was telling me from the beginning he said uh, uh, Reggie Wright was a crook uh, this is when Reggie was an active Compton police officer Yeah, and uh, he said Reggie Wright the crooks say how many bloods has Reggie Wright arrested and the answer to that, they all laugh, is none, because Reggie Wright is a blood. And at the end of my career, I also was the bodyguard assigned by the sheriff's department to protect, to protect Omar Bradley, the mayor yeah. of Compton, who's also a blood. So I didn't have all the pieces. I had little scattered pieces. Uh, and then when the Wallace came, come up, came up and then I started working with Sergio, then was able to get some of the information to put it together from from Mike.
explanation of events was that Biggie and Bad Boy were aligned with the Crips, whereas Suge Knight, Tupac, and Death Row were with the Pyrus. Gang loyalty is the most important thing in Compton. To be called a snitch is to be as good as dead. Suge Knight lived over in this area here, over on this side of town. He never really claimed any particular gang or stuff because he was into football at the time and going up. But the guys he grew up with, and the gangster type guys are, are guys from this mob area over here. And uh, naturally, when he got into his business and started the Death Row label, a lot of those guys wanted jobs from him and wanted to identify with him. And he hired them to work along with him. There's an individual in his story of Biggie that seems like he has Teflon in regards to trouble. Reggie Wright Sr. and Reggie Wright Jr were major power players within Compton. As goes Compton, goes the underworld of LA. I shouldn't say what I'm about to say, but I've gotten from at least three different sources information that implicates Reggie Wright Sr. and Reggie Wright Jr. in various criminal enterprises. Back in the 90s, drug trafficking was rampant within the Compton Police Department. Missing evidence, missing drugs, missing guns, you name it. The problem is, Everyone was scared of both Reggie and his father. They were cops with a license to steal. I also have new information in regards to a federal drug trafficking case out of Memphis, where both Reggie and his father were listed on a federal indictment trafficking oxycodone, cocaine, and marijuana. Reggie Wright Jr. is currently in a federal prison. I needed Richard to tell me more. I will come back to Reggie Wright Jr. Because everyone says the same thing. Reggie was the one who had a relationship with David Mack and Rafael Perez. Reggie could be the key to this whole story. When you were going to use Psycho Mike, what was your strategy? Psycho Mike told us who, he, who, who killed Biggie and how he knew that. And he said that he had met Amir Muhammad, um, that he had a relationship with Amir Muhammad through Psycho Mike's brother. And that, that, that Psycho Mike's brother had introduced him to him at a party, um, but that he had a relationship with him, but he hadn't seen him or talked to him in quite a while. But that Psycho Mike also had heard out on the street. Psycho Mike was, he was an OG of the uh, Black Gorilla family, um, the gang. And... He said that many people out on the street, word was that Amir Muhammad was involved in the shooting. And Psycho Mike said, you know, I talked to him. I said, well, look, you've got a relationship with him. What do you think about if we put a wire on you and introduce you to him? Do you think he would talk to you? Because, yeah, I think he would. Next time on The Dossier. LAPD could not find Amir Muhammad. I found Amir Muhammad. We were going to send Psycho Mike with a wire on to go and talk to him at his house. Once we set all that up, I reached out to Detective Katz and the homicide people. So just to be clear, you want to wire Psycho Mike to go and try and get information or talk to Amir Muhammad. And again, you go to the LAPD and say, this is what I'm going to do. Right? Right. This is how I'm going to do it. Do you want to be a part of it? 